I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Peter Moran. And I'm Joseph Finn. And you're tuned in to listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast or we'll fill your mouth with bees. When you, you had to make a more. sound effect out of it, I think uh, I think maybe we'll redo that in post. Uh, <laughs> or we could do, or you'll be our victim. That was crazy. <laughs> we found a new bottom. <laughs> so we want to thank, this is our second guest. This is a big deal. And this is our first uh, celebrity guest because we have one of the hosts of Try It, You Like It, a fantastic podcast, Joseph Finn on. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you very much for having me, Aaron and Peter. Yeah, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, sorry that we had to walk you through all of the uh, obvious naivete that we have with uh, recording a podcast. We're still very much figuring out how to do guest episodes in a way that A, doesn't feel like pulling teeth, but B, doesn't sound terrible. Yeah, this would have been this would have been great pre-show banter here, Peter. Um, this, yeah, when we so when we when Peter and I started this uh, podcast, we were like, what what names did we want to get on the show? And we were both uh, big fans of your podcast, and yours was one of the first names that uh, that came up. And so we're so happy to have you on. We want to start with letting our audience get to know your audience who probably already knows you from such questions as what did you watch last night why don't you tell us three things about yourself that you think that our listeners would like to know well i am a born and bred uh, chicago area guy i uh, live in oak park illinois currently which is the uh, hometown of ernest hemingway and mary elizabeth mostriano uh, but more recently tom lennon and jonathan galecki it's a weird list of people folks <laughs> <laughs> when you go into the oak park River forest high school they have the wall of fame on there which starts with like noble lords and whatnot and the last person in the wall is i swear to god tom lennon's uh, publicity photo as lieutenant dango from uh reno 911 <laughs> <laughs> what they should do, though, to inspire all the kids is to post their grades. <laughs> <laughs> like, you can end up here. Uh, and finally, I'll I... describe my podcast a little bit just to get that out of the way. Uh, try yeah, like please do. A, please do. Uh, it's a podcast where me and my co-host, Amy Watts and Randy Perry, we uh, do it about t uh, every two weeks. And we choose a theme for every episode. One of us chooses a theme, and then the other two people uh, choose either a book or a movie. We rotate on all this and, uh, that are based on the theme. And then we just kind of uh, jabber about them for about an hour. Yeah, and the only thing, uh, our only basic rule is that we have to recommend stuff that the other two probably have not encountered yet. Yeah, and it's also the only podcast that I've heard people talk at length about Zathura. So right there, that's a that's a hearty recommendation because oh, you mean, yeah. Iron, Man, you mean awesome. Iron Man zero point five? Yep. It's <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 a really fun show. Especially, it's a sort of show where you just feel like you're hanging out with some people you uh, you really dig. You, you're hanging out with some buddies. It's it's got that sort of uh, fun energy. Unlike like the show, show, which is mortal like, enemies. 
uh, based on our dark city line in the sand. <laughs> this show, which is more like uh, two old alcoholics in a bar who don't like each other, but who else are they going to drink with? Yeah. And I have two things to say in response to that. One, uh, the general tenor of the episode of the podcast that we go for is that we try to be positive about things. We want people to like things. We, we, we try not to be yet another, oh, it's a bad movie podcast, because there are many of those and many of them that do it a lot better than us. I, I, I think that that's something that our shows have in common very much is we, we try to, especially if you listen to our Life Force episode, we're, we try to be as positive as we can. Our key beliefs in this this whole thing is that if you enjoyed it, it does have value. Yeah, and I, and I recommend and everybody my, go back and listen to that Life Force episode, which I think you have some very interesting things to say about a deeply weird movie. Yeah, um, and I, I don't even know why that one was brought up as an example, because I legitimately love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> And I will draw my line in the sand. Dark City is a near masterpiece that could only be slightly better if uh, they had gotten someone slightly better in the lead. Ooh, yeah, I'll, is this con- I'll, be- concede, I'll concede that. Joseph, this you can come back on the show is- whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a new theme where we just uh, discover, we just ask our guests which uh, what they think of Dark City and any other episodes that we disagreed on. Did we get a third uh, fact? Uh, oh, yes, I am the biggest White Sox fan you'll ever meet. I'm probably uh, in among the Dissolvers. I'm not sure of our sports affiliations, but I'm probably one of the bigger sports people, uh, and I adore sports movies, but I still hate The Natural, which I think is an absolute trash movie. I've never seen The Natural. <laughs> and we should say, what uh, you might not know this about Joseph, he's 12 feet tall, so <laughs> biggest is really based on the fact that he had to design his house specially for him. I kept banging my head on things. Freaking hobbits. <laughs> yeah, you can only get so many concussions before you have to move on. So we've we've once again uh, fallen into the trap where we are now 20 minutes into this and have forgotten to say what movie we'll be covering this week. <laughs> um, so do you want me to, So I, what, this, the movie we picked this week is Candyman, the Clive Barker penned Bernard Rose directed uh, horror movie that takes place in Chicago, specifically Cabrini Green. Yeah, and, and, uh, and we have two. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the Peter is a Chicagoan, as is uh, Joseph. So, and also uh, Peter and I. This this was kind of our first movie that we wanted to do. That was kind of a like if you if you want to know how we pick movies, there's a few different criteria. But one that we've talked about is let's revisit something that we used to love and not necessarily see how it holds up. I feel like that's a very reductive view of something you haven't seen in 15 years, but just see what how you feel about it now. So that was the case for Peter and myself. And then Joseph, I think we mentioned this on an earlier episode. Uh, we didn't know this when we pitched uh, him joining us for Candyman, but Joseph had never seen it before. Yeah, it was one of those movies that somehow um, I was in college at the time this movie came out. And somehow I just completely missed out on seeing it and just never got around to it over the years. It was a film that I knew was held it was um, held in good regard by a lot of people. I know there are a lot of fans of Tony Todd's performance in it, but I somehow just never got around to it. And we'll get into uh, what he thinks about the movie. I think we actually spoiled it on an earlier episode. Either way, we'll, we'll get into the movie. We're going to start with some of our uh, much-skipped opening segments here um i i so i do i do have a quiz for for both of you i i tried to this is not the quiz but i was like man two people from chicago the movie takes place in chicago Chicago's a big part of this movie i should create some sort of chicago knowledge 
quiz, and I tried a bunch of variations. I couldn't get anything to work. Here, here's I'll give you an example. Of this is this is how low I had sunk. Um, so one of my ideas that we're not doing for a quiz is is this a famous Chicago location or a Candyman sequel? So for example, for example, in this quiz, I would say, "Hey Peter, Dempster Street, Chicago location or a Candyman sequel?" Oh, Chicago location. <laughs> yeah, you'd be right. And then Joseph, <laughs> farewell to flesh. Uh, that is Candyman candy Two, I believe. That is correct. That is not a Chicago location. Farewell to Flesh is a Candyman <laughs> sequel. So, and there's only three Candyman movies, uh, which means only two sequels. So that that quiz ran out of uh, steam very quickly, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so what I settled with is to go back, and we at this point we have a rich canon of episodes that we can steal from. Uh, eight. So I went with that, where because I feel like so we did we did something back in the Death Wish episode where Charles Bronson had starred in a ton of movies, but a lot of them were not uh, recognizable. And I feel like Tony Todd, the star of Candyman, or one of the stars of Candyman, has the same sort of career, where he starred in 100-plus movies, but probably, you know, five to ten of those movies that you could name. So, once again, now we get to do this same type of game versus Joseph versus Peter. I've created a bunch of fake Tony Todd movies and some real ones. We'll play best out of ten. Is this movie fake or real? I will um, note that, and I'm pretty sure this doesn't apply at all because it is an actual movie that Tony Todd is not in. My wife and I spent about five minutes trying to decide if we were racist or not for being semi-sure that Tony Todd was in The Fifth Element, which he is not. That's Delroy Lindo. <laughs> at least you didn't think it was Chris Tucker. Like, then I would say maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm, I'll start. With, I'll start with this quiz. Who wants to go first? Um, I'll go first. Okay, Peter. Dark reels, a real or fake Tony Todd movie? Can I ask if? Can I ask for the spelling of reels? R e e l s. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with that is a Tony Todd movie. That is a Tony Todd movie. That is correct. Joseph, your Yo. turn. Voodoo Morning. Oh, that sounds like it should be a real t- Tony Todd movie. It yes. is not. That is a fake. Tony Todd movie. Damn. Um, so it is. It is one to zero. Peter, your next one. Shadow Dreamer. Wow. If not, if that's not a real movie, then you really knocked it out of the park. Uh, I'm gonna say real. It is a fake Tony Todd. Movie. Wow. You knocked that one out of the park. Yeah. So Aaron gets one point. <laughs> yeah. Again, hosts don't get points. Peter. I don't know why every week I need to explain this to you. Um, Alex Trebek has never won Jeopardy that I'm aware of. Patsy Jack has never given Vanna White a high five as they take home the dough. Um, I'm sorry. Hold on a second. Alex Trebek wins Jeopardy every day. Thank you very much. He he, he does get all the answers. All right. Joseph. Yo. Sunset Heat. Real or fake Tony Todd movie? Oh, Sunset Heat, which sounds like a bad 80s L.A. cop movie. Um... I'm going to say it's real. That is real. Correct. It is one to one. To Uh, one. One to one. No. (laughs) Just one to one. Vampires in Phoenix, Peter. Real or fake Tony Todd movie? I feel like that's a really bad place for vampires to hang out, personally. I'm going to say it's fake. It is fake. You have no idea how close that was to a real one, though. See, my, my process is just basically mildly changing real Tony Todd movies. So he was in a movie <laughs> called Vampires in Vegas. Yes, that I would like to know one of the best vampire movies takes place in the American Southwest and is called Near Dark. It's not that implausible. 
Yeah, yeah that's true. Peter. How dare you? <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think I just revealed myself as some sort of insane person that thinks that somehow in Phoenix they get more sunlight per year than they would in like, I don't know, a comparable location 500 miles west. They only get two, uh, they only get two hours of darkness a night or something. <laughs> revealed myself as a crazy person for thinking that. I needed to reveal my thought process, though. That's important, as always on the show, is to reveal not just our thoughts, but how we thought them. Um, <laughs> Joseph, it is your turn. It is two to one. Peter's lead. Yours is Brian loves you. That's so ludicrous. It has to be a real one. It is a real Tony Todd movie. So it is two to two. I'm sorry. Um, we, can, we can edit this out, but there is no way I'm not looking this title up right now to see what the hell Brian <laughs> loves you is. It's, it's spelled B R. B-R-Y-A-N. <laughs> a small-town therapist, Seth Landau, falls under the seductive spell of a dangerous cult. Also has Brinky Stevens and George Went. It's got a it's got a one-star and IMDb. Do you know you what you have to do to get a one-star and IMDb? Uh, <laughs> I think you have to eat a puppy on screen. Spell Brian the less popular way. <laughs> I'm concerned, though, that now Joseph's on IMDb looking up Tony Todd movies I for our game looking, about Tony Todd. I, I was only looking up that one after I guessed. <laughs> All right. Peter, two to two. Dark Assassin, real or fake Tony Todd movie? Real. That is correct. Joseph. Mm-hmm. Apostles, real or fake Tony Todd movie? Oh, I'm going to say it's a fake. It is a fake. Man, this is a nail biter. It's three to three. What did you change it from, if I may ask? Was it Disciples or something? Disciples, yeah. (laughs) 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 I should have waited and shared my process at the end of the game, so that wasn't factored into all these titles. Uh, (laughs) What's a better title that sounds just like that? Oh. All right, Peter. Your last question. Before we go to a potential tiebreaker round, the Dog Walker, real or fake Tony Todd movie? The Dog Walker. Ooh. Yeah, your fake ones are really good as well as your real ones. I'm going to just say real. That is real. Nice. Woo. Four to three. So this is it. The last question to know if there will be a tiebreaker. The Enemy Beside You, real or fake Tony Todd movie? Oh, that's a good one if it's fake. Um, I'm going to say it's a real it is fake. Damn! Once again, the person that we brought on to our show to have a good time has lost the game that we played. And Peter, <laughs> who has a serious problem with uh, competitiveness and handling winning well, has won the game once again. <laughs> <laughs> Hit the Joe Esposito music. Yeah. <laughs> can we, I'll, I'll, can I'll we... quickly go through. So I had a few more that I didn't use. Just so You can shout out what you think. I'll go through the last ones quick. Butter. It's real, but, but he's not in real? it. Uh, no, it's, it's real, and he is in it. Um, he's in butter? Is it in butter? What the hell? According to IMDb. The, the, the one with butter. Jennifer Garner? I don't. Again, I just looked at titles, Joseph. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do research on each individual movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so there's a different movie called Butter that uh, the lead is uh, everyone's favorite Ghostbuster, Ernie Hudson. And uh, yeah, Tony Todd. This is a this is a completely different movie. Oh, it looks I'm, like this is. A- I am looking at the cast list right now. It's got like Donald Faison, Sam Phillips, Nia Lawn, Shamar Moore, Donnie Wahlberg. <laughs> it was an HBO <laughs> movie like- from 1998. I'll go through the last one. So, uh, Darkness: colon, The Absence of Light. Fake. <laughs> that is fake. <laughs> Thank God. 
Um, there is stuff that's close to that. Remember though, uh, right? Mercy Road, real, fake, oh. centrifugal force, oh. fake. That is fake. <laughs> and Tom Cool, real. That is real. Oh, I forgot one. Scarecrow Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me it's real. Uh, it's real. Yeah, that was real. Is it just fo- is it just footage of a of a drunk dude driving a combine and just not paying attention? I mean, scarecrows are not ever living, so I think just by creating one, you've also slayed it. <laughs> Scarecrow killer. No slayer. They they went Pardon for me. the alliteration. Oh, it's not Stay a real home. movie. It's an asylum movie. That's disappointing. I mean, it's. It's real in the sense that it exists. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was terrific! Thank you very much, Aaron, for putting that game together. Yes. I was trying to come up with a, a pretty, uh, pretty complicated game involving Chicago filming locations, and this was much better. Yeah, once you realize you can just instead of actually doing work to come up with something new, just rip off an idea you had a couple weeks ago, everything fell into place. <laughs> <laughs> the re- it's a recurring bit. People love recurring bits. Well, we keep, you know, our our joke in these were that they're like we're pitching ongoing segments and this is the first time anything has actually truly became an ongoing segment. <laughs> Twice. That's ongoing. Yeah, so on that note, do you want to start uh want to start getting into the movie? Hell yeah. second recap or do you want me to do it um i can do it do you want to try the five second recap researcher hook people die fire uh people more people die perfect that's pretty good <laughs> that, that worked out perfectly <laughs> yeah aaron do, aaron do you want to do the aaron do you want to do the 90 second or do you want me to do it yeah I'll, I'll jump into the 90 second recap so virginia madison is basically uh works or is, is studying at this college uh or works at the college and she is researching urban legends, and they hear about the legend of the Candyman, who stalks this uh, Cabrini Green uh, development in Chicago. Her and her uh, friend, who also works at the college, decide to go investigate because they believe at this point in the movie that that there is a serial killer who everyone is not investigating because they blame it on this legend of the Candyman, the killer with the hook. And so they go and investigate this uh, project. Uh, they find a weird uh, – this is also in Virginia Madison's character's apartment, a uh, hole in the mirror that basically lets her go to uh, the apartment next to him. That basically they didn't finish a wall. And in, the, in this area in the project, she finds all this weird graffiti and evidence that the Candyman is an actual person who is giving razor blade candy to children. So she ends up getting attacked by what she thinks at the time is the Candyman, which is um, a pimp. 
uh, who is using the Legend of the Candyman to scare people. He has a hook, uh, not for a hand, but uses a hook. Uh, from there, uh, she kind of wakes up and this time meets the actual Candyman, which I should actually back up and say the way that you summon the Candyman is by saying his name uh, five times in a mirror, uh, which she did at the very beginning of the movie. And from there, the Candyman actually says, be my victim, that he wants to use her to continue to uh, spread the legend of the Candyman. From there, she starts waking up in different areas, and uh, everyone assumes that she has committed these horrible acts. The first one is cutting the head off a dog of another lady in the project, uh, and her baby is missing. She gets arrested for that. She's out on bail. While she's out on bail, she ends up blacking out again where the Candyman is taking control of her and killing her friend. From there, she finally she gets locked up in a mental institute for a month. She escapes. She f- ends up meeting up with the Candyman. That she tricks him to into him thinking that uh, that he that she agrees with his plan. Uh, from there, they end up kind of holding each other in this giant junk pile outside of the project at Karina Green that the neighborhood sets on fire. And from there, she stabs him with. With a stake that's on fire, finds the baby that was kidnapped, uh, left there, takes the baby, runs out. She gets burned to a crisp. The Candyman dies, and bees fly out everywhere. Um, and uh, which, which I didn't explain why there's bees. So if you haven't seen this movie, that's a very confusing part of this recap. Uh, the Candyman's dead. Her ex-husband is looking in the mirror and says her name five times because he misses her. And there, Helen appears and kills him and makes it look like his new girlfriend did it the end thus setting up the sequel candy helen what (laughs) (laughs) i just had in my notes candy Candy helen Helen, and i was like oh helen i thought you said holland (laughs) no although i think the sequel the sequel does not take place in chicago because i i looked it up Uh, new orleans yeah new orleans yeah uh, I did no, what we it, call. Uh, I did one of the twin pillars of our podcast, which is research and science. I did research <laughs> and found out what happened. It's it's kind of funny that I was forgetting things as I got to the end. Where oh, you need to know this. But hopefully, that's a good recap if you haven't seen the movie in a while, um, which was the case with myself and Peter. So why don't we start and kind of go through just quickly our overall thoughts of the movie? As long as I'm talking and have been for a few minutes, I'll just continue doing that. <laughs> You're doing great, Tiger. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you, Peter. I hadn't seen it in, uh, in like I said, since I was in high school. And I was kind of going through a phase where I wanted to find movies that scared me. This is probably more information than you need. But I, I, I used to be get very scared as like a kid watching movies. Um, to the point where like I couldn't go to sleep if I had seen Ghostbusters or something like that. Like... I was very easily scared, and, you know, by the time I got into late junior high and high school, I started to find it fun to be scared by movies, which is probably a natural transition a lot of people make. And so I was going through and trying to find movies, and, and basically only trying to find movies that scared me. And I watched this. I liked it. I, I remembered it not being all that scary. Um, and then I haven't watched it since then. And rewatching it, it is way scarier than I remember to the point that I was jumping in my couch a couple times at moments. Uh, very creepy. Like, I think I actually, like, I always liked it, but I think I liked it even more upon this most recent uh, rewatch. Yeah, I, uh, I, I had a similar experience uh, in the sense that 
<clears throat> I'd seen it a bunch of years before. It was on this short list of movies that I saw. I, I would watch at um, one of my friend's house growing up. He just had this set of horror tapes that like, oh, my mom went to bed. We should watch these. But I had like sort of spotty memories of them because A, I was young and B, this was of course before drugs and alcohol. So uh, before it was ever invented, not just for me. Um, this was before I started drinking and smoking. So it was uh, just purely being a kid and just having bad memory combined with um, watching it late at night and eventually falling asleep. So watching it, this is the first time I've watched it as a adult or whatever you'd call me. And I didn't catch all of the things that stitched together the horror scenes when I was a kid. As a kid, we would just talk about how scared we were between the scary scenes. Um, so like I wasn't paying attention to any of the relationships between characters, any of the commentary about, you know, inner city poverty and blah, blah, blah. I just, I just was watching the creepy imagery as a kid and so yeah. it was it, it was like watching it all for the first time again i really really liked it yeah i'm not sure and I, I you know a lot of these i had some friends that i used to watch horror movies with to try to find some scary stuff in high school and you know i i was kind of chalking this up as a not scary but interesting concept horror movie and that really turned out to not be the case Joseph, what did you? What was your take on being a first-time watcher of this movie? I have two areas of ta- areas of attack I want to go in uh, on this movie. First off, is the as a pure horror movie, it's very unsettling in a lot of ways. There's not a lot of huge jump scares. I mean, the first time we see actually see Candyman, uh, besides a opening urban legend part with Ted Raimi, by the way, which I was totally not yeah. expecting. Um, when you see him in the parking garage calling out to Helen, it's very unsettling in the way that he almost could be just some normal guy, but then just the way he's standing and the lighting for it, it's just really well put together. And then the real horror when the movie starts. I'm like, wait. That can't be a dog sitting there. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, what the hell is going on in this movie? So gore-wise, just to put it that bluntly, there's a lot of unsettling stuff in this movie. And going back to the um, uh, when they're investigating Cabrini Green, I have a question for you two. When she is crawling into the lair of the candy man through the medicine cabinet uh, hole in the wall, and she finds the candy that you mentioned earlier that has razor blades inside of it, I actually initially thought, is that an offering for the Candyman? Yeah, I, I didn't entirely understand that either because Candyman, I think, has enough candy. Candyman's no, normally don't have a dearth of sugar. I, I didn't understand the razor blade thing so either. Did I, so you get I, that at all? Yeah, I think so. So my understanding was that now this was not laid out that well in the movie. I, I think I learned, I figured this out from other sources I read as part of my research. But I believe the point was that he, so the Candyman is trying to keep his legend alive, which is why he ends up using Helen to kind of create a big moment so that everyone knows the Candyman. So him putting razor blades into candy is. It was his attempt to keep his legend and his folklore and his urban legend and stuff like that alive. That makes sense. Yeah, it's it's really it's really poorly explained in the movie, and I didn't get that. Like I said, I did not get that point from the movie. I got that from reading uh, some recaps and trivia and stuff after. Sure. Uh, then moving into my other line of attack on this movie, it's fascinating in terms of 
Cabrini Green and the UIC, which is the university that uh, Helen and her friend, um, ew, what the hell is her name? Uh, Bernadette? Am I wrong? Uh, Bernadette. Bernadette? Uh, where they are researchers at. And Urban Renewal and 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 the ghettos. There, This movie has a lot more to say about such things than you would expect for a horror movie from like 1992. Uh, and by the way, if you told me this movie from, was from 1988, would have totally believed you. It does not feel like <laughs> yeah. a 90s movie for some reason. No, I yeah. can't believe this is post Silence of the Lambs. Um, I just thought that this was like pre serial killer um, craze, and that's why it only kind of touched on that. But it, it wasn't. This was more like greenlit as to kind of capitalize on the idea of Candyman as a serial killer, which surprised me because I think from that aspect, they did a terrible job of trying to set up Candyman as this cool new serial killer character. Right, because you know what? He's not cool, he's terrifying. Yep, <laughs> but I, I thought it, he, it, had, it had interesting things to say about Cabrini Green as a horrible failure of a housing development in, in basically in downtown Chicago, um, which no longer exists. It starts, uh, I, mean, I think, about four years after this is when they started uh, to talk about tearing it down, and it's been gone for a couple of years now. But what's interesting is I'm not sure if it's conscious or not. But using UIC, UIC also replaced an entire ethnic enclave back in the '60s. Because that used to be the location of Little Italy on Taylor Street here in Chicago, and they basically displaced all of them to build UIC. This is and, and Joseph, this is something where I'm actually originally from Naperville, so I'm like a I adopted Chicago. Joseph's a true Chicago native, so this is exactly the reason I wanted to have you on for this because I had no idea that was part of UIC's history. Uh, to be I, realistic, I, I grew up in Mount Prospect. I'm, I'm not a native Chicagoan, but close. Yeah, I and I think that's what was interesting about watching this movie a second time. Um, now, I, I obviously I'm not from Chicago. I live in Minneapolis now. You know, when I watched this originally, like I was a high school kid from a smaller town in North Dakota, so a lot of this really flew over my head on every level. Um, not just the fact that I didn't recognize the name Cabrini Green, that I didn't the concept of low income housing and ghettoizing and gentrification, like. All that stuff was completely foreign as a concept to me besides just maybe a couple mentions in school here and there or knowing that when I went to Detroit or Chicago or something with my parents that there were neighborhoods that they didn't want to go into or something like that. So watching it now with understanding how a lot of the how cities work, move people into poorer areas and then later, you know, would try to take some areas back or how they would separate those areas so that the people buying the quote unquote, you know, uh, nice middle class or upper class condos and how they would feel safe, like knowing a lot of how that works and understanding a lot more about the way that cities are are gentrified, obviously led a whole new aspect to this movie that was completely not present the last time I saw it. You could, I seriously think, you could pair this movie with the HBO miniseries from last year, Show Me a Hero, and it would not be that far off. Because they both have things to say coming at it from different directions about uh, low-income housing and how cities manage them. I think there's a, a trustworthy gap that people have with horror movies where they don't want to sort of blend. They, they, they see horror as this sort of dumb genre of people getting cut open and dead dogs and boobs and, and such. And I think, oh, and I the think that the... the 
<laughs> it, I think the sort of craze in the '80s did a lot of damage to the whole genre. I think. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I think that um, though I do like pure horror that's just supposed to be of its own accord. I think that uh, it's lost in the public consciousness. It's lost that balance where people either they don't want social commentary on their horror or um, they're not looking for it. They're just like, oh, yeah, this movie takes place in the ghetto. And you could essentially treat Cabrini Green like it's like a haunted house and not look at any of the the underlying statements on poverty that the movie is making. Uh, But I think think that would kind of cheat cheat you out of a lot of the movie. (laughs) I I was going to save this for later, but as long as it came up, to undermine the 80s horror craze, the one time they show nudity in this film which, again, was a staple of 80s horror and, you know, you had you had blood and you had nudity. Those were like the twin pillars of making a horror movie story, direction, everything else could be damned. The one time they do show nudity in this movie is like the worst, is like the grossest. Um, you know, it's Virginia Madison. It's not that explicit, but she is just drenched in blood and it's a very clinical police looking at them, which which felt to me, I don't know if you guys felt this way, as a way to, to kind of undermine that, oh, this is not that kind of horror movie. Right. We're going to give no, this that, to that you, scene, but... That scene is- uncomfortable yeah yeah the movie has the movie has big supernatural horror moments where she's being uh hypnotized and seduced by this Candyman figure and then it also has this sort of everyday horror like um not being able to trust your own memory and uh having to strip in front of a stranger and having to cry and be vulnerable in front of a stranger the movie has has a nice mix of of discomfort for the audience. Or one of the worst things, the betrayal of a partner, her husband. Yeah, there's a there's a cheating plot line which this is this is like 10 steps ahead, but uh, actually not really because I don't know if the Trevor really matters that much in the movie. Uh, did you get the sense that since she was a grad student that in the past maybe sh- there was in the past do you think that she was one of Trevor's conquests? I think it's entirely possible. Yeah. I think that that was I think that as soon as that happened, I thought I think that she sort of had a realization like this fucking asshole just does this to women. He just pulls up the these these young vulnerable women uh, out of these grad programs and then starts dating them. And like this is really yeah. skipping to the end though. But I think um, I, I like to think that Trevor was happy that uh, Helen ended up going away for a long time because. When she's gone, he's he's painting the entire condo pink. That feels like a weird thing to do when your significant other goes away for a long time. Like, finally, I can paint this <laughs> damn thing pink. That was such a weird way to show that he was making changes without her, I thought. My wife's in an insane asylum. Let me just move the new girl in and paint the whole place <laughs> a really weird pink. <laughs> like, yeah, you could have just talked to your wife about this, probably. Uh, well, not if she's under Thorazine for a month, which I thought, yeah. I'm like, is that even possible? Yeah. I, I, I was like, man, the 90s were really, they had a really laissez-faire attitude with uh, psychotic drugs and just putting people under, because that was, the movie uh, kind of aligns with other Clive Barker movies wherein um, asylums are the scariest place on earth because that's where they stick anybody that might seem a little bit crazy and they just suck you under, steal all of your creativity, steal all of your personality with drugs. That's like first and second Hellraiser movie both have a legitimate fear of being institutionalized and I think that this movie really capitalizes on, on the everyday terror 
of just being like, yeah, I'm a like she's like uh, an intelligent woman who values her freedom, her her sen- her ability to go from A to B, and she's not only being locked up but essentially being put in a stupor. Though yeah. in fairness, I mean, her story, if that happened, I'd have trouble believing that oh, she sure. was possessed by uh, a murdered slave from 200 years ago uh, to kill people. So uh, he's a huge dick about it, his husband. But I can see I can see raising an eyebrow at her story <laughs> at the very at the very least. It happens, yeah. but it doesn't happen that often for people to be able to use it as a, as an excuse. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying this is like I'm not saying this is like Kafka's The Trial, where it's like why are why is why are you guys being dicks? Like just lay the facts out reasonably, and you see that maybe I think any reasonable person would be like this person's a dog murderer and a uh, a woman who went to Cabrini Green and just started assaulting people. She killed her best friend as soon as she got any leeway. Like so, one thing I want to get out of the way before we start talking about broader parts of the movie. Is did anyone else constantly think this was uh, like 1993 Gillian Anderson? <laughs> uh, no. I, okay. No, I, I could I could see it in like the her like lips or sort of sort of that. But, it was more the hairdo. Um, it was like season like two of X Files. I don't know if that does that make me like a terrible person that I think two actresses think look similar. Um, no, not at all. Uh, a, a monster. <laughs> a monster. Yeah, I, she has. She had a. Uh, she's really cute in this movie. She is like this. This sort of. I do want to talk about sort- the hair. Yeah, the, the hair is interesting because for some reason it was working for me. Uh, Every time she shows on screen, no matter if she's been in the insane asylum for a month, hair on point. Yeah, that is true. They wouldn't take that from her. It does look like she's been in a convertible recently, though, sometimes. <laughs> I know that's just the style, but, you know, it definitely... Like, I, I mean the comparison to Jillian Anderson in The X-Files as a compliment because, you know, she's strong, she's smart, she's brave. I mean, she has no problem going into, like, an area that everyone's like, you shouldn't do this. They even comment that Trevor would never go and investigate the Candyman and Cabrini Greet. There was a sense that this was a, a great character for a uh and a and a strong uh woman and i think that definitely and also it, it helped that she was you know investigating the paranormal which definitely feels like right up jillian anderson's alleyway is it gillian anderson now i'm worried we're doing the thing where we mispronounce stuff uh, no let me <laughs> we, let me uh, correct this it's jillian anderson it's gillian jacobs okay there we go yeah G- gillian jacobs really uh Really threw a wrench in the, in the whole Gillian Jillian thing for me. Yeah, just blame, um, her, blame her mother. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the age old nerd problem when you can't find anybody that you want to talk to in person about uh, about a, a certain topic. Next time Joseph's on, we're going to do a segment where he teaches us uh, how to pronounce names uh, from past episodes that we've horribly mangled. And I actually <laughs> didn't even know. I didn't actually know I had a problem till I got on this show and have someone said something early on and then you start realizing i don't know how to pronounce anything Um, (laughs) i i had to start a podcast with a friend to find out that i don't know how to speak very well (laughs) just we 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 made a a medium to our strengths but yeah so um so yeah yeah, let's get into let's get into uh, um broader themes just general thoughts about the movie uh areas that the movie as a whole explores that we want to talk about and then after that we'll get into any specific scenes that we want to talk about and go from there um i feel like i really <laughs> hit the broader theme with the whole uh, urban renewal and poverty thing 
Uh, yep. So maybe I really jumped the gun on that gun on that one. Sorry about that. No, but, no. I think uh, I think there's more to talk about there. To be honest, I don't know. I would actually like to know more about because so Cabrini Green was was totally destroyed in 2011. Does anyone know if this movie had an impact? Because this was a very popular movie. Yeah, um, you know, well, if, if I may take this one for a second, um, I don't think it had that much impact, but it had you know some visibility impact. Um, uh, just to go back into history a little bit, Mayor Richard M. Daley, the second Mayor Daley, uh, was elected in '89, which was three years before uh, this uh, movie was made. And uh, Cabrini Green, they first seriously started to talk about taking it down in 95, I believe. It, it was one of those scenes that had been kind of fermenting for a while, because uh, everybody knew that uh, Cabrini Green and the various other homes, the Robert Taylor homes, various other ones, were just a horrible idea. You don't concentrate uh, people in lower income like that. It just turns really bad. And it just took a while for the momentum to build up that they decided, okay, we're just going to tear them down. We're going to try and redistribute people into more uh, mixed income housing in various areas. Uh, so it might have had a little bit of an impact, but I don't want to say that it had that much impact, I think. I would say that uh, Joseph's more uh, versed at this stuff than I am, but I would say that it helped contribute to the national consciousness that this was a <laughs> this is a horrible uh, uh, plight on um, how Chicago was dealing with inner city poverty and that it needed to stop. Uh, this this wasn't some sort of death blow that that all of a sudden. No, you no, know, no, no, no. And I, yeah, I didn't think I, it was that. I just was wondering if if any part of being able to give a a visualization of what. Was occurring? It, it, it's interesting to me. I mean, they filmed at Cabrini. You got to give credit <laughs> on that. This it, 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 this movie is filmed at Cabrini Green, which was a horrible place for a lot of people who just were trying to live there, but were surrounded by uh, criminals. And I, it's really interesting how they filmed it with what feels accurate. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, they made uh, they made a sort of uh, accord with a local gang to get access to different parts of the units without being threatened. They shot uh, a lot of it, not all of it. I believe they had to stop at a certain point because someone fired around from the roof into the uh, one of the vans they were using, and at that point, they packed up and uh, moved the rest of the shooting to different sets. They got a lot of the principal photography they wanted to get done there with the help of yeah, there were some local uh, local people that were just trying to help and maybe thought that the movie would help expose the problems of Cabrini Green and also just got people that wanted to be in a movie. There's a pretty interesting uh, sort of verisimilitude that they got from shooting in an actual project that I don't think they could have ever, ever recreated on set. Though I'm sure there's a, you know, there's a couple of interior sets probably. I'm willing to bet the bathroom, uh, the outside uh, bathroom set, that that's probably a set just for, you know, purposes of making the movie. Uh, but the outside, I'm kind of curious, okay, is that an actual uh, uh, park bathroom? The scene where she goes know. in and she's threatened by the fake uh, Candyman. <laughs> it sure looks like one. Most park bathrooms I've been to, doesn't matter where, or there's usually words <laughs> written in shit all over the, the wall. I mean, mostly because after I finish I, I write it on the wall um <laughs> yeah i think i feel like they i feel like they had been kind of infused with this uh energy to actually yeah go shoot in the actual location so even if the bathroom was fake i think they did a great job nailing this sort of like blandness of urban renewal projects 
this sort of like bland depression that kind of the the structures take on it, it really had that kind of look to it one of the notes that you said when in the when you were opening with your uh the 90 second uh, synopsis of the movie Aaron, was you were talking about the mirrors and you said like it was like poorly made that's half of the the equation bernard rose when he was researching the movie um found out that it was just a uh, poorly designed unit plan that had two mirrors going back to back and that uh, a series of murders actually took place. Oh, so that was real. That's a real thing. That wasn't something oh. they made up for the movie. Yeah, that was a real thing that people could basically just push down some uh, cheap drywall or cheap uh, plywood and go into their neighboring units. And there were, yeah, vicious assaults and murders that happened because people could essentially just get into their neighbor's units. Yeah, I can send you links from old uh, Chicago Reader articles that are about that. It's almost like uh, just visually, it's a very potent sort of metaphor where like a oh a just on a base level, it's one of the most vulnerable places in your house, the bathroom. B, it's right behind the mirror. There's sort of like a creepiness of like transitioning through a mirror between worlds. Like your apartment unit should be this like beautiful little bubble where no one can bother you. <laughs> and then the idea that you can sort of transcend those worlds through a mirror is, is doubly creepy. It's a real life horror that they took it and pulled into the movie. And actually, that actually brings up one of my uh, big things I want to talk about in this movie. One of our classic segues. Um, it actually was a really good segue, but I feel like it's always important to ruin it. One, one thing that I think this movie does extremely well, which I think most movies do the opposite of, is that I feel like this movie is like a reverse Scooby-Doo. It sets up very early in the first 45 minutes before we ever see the Candyman. All the possible ways that this is a non-supernatural murderer. It shows early on, it does the foreshadowing of here's this mirror. That people can get through. They go to the they go to the project, and there's people telling about the legend of the Candyman. They show that here's this little lair that he had. It feels like they're going out of their way to almost set up that this is taking place in the real world. That they're going to create this legend and then show that it's uh, actually happening. When then, of course, it takes a turn and turns into this you know wonderful supernatural thing actually occurring which feels like the opposite of most of these movies where they set up all these weird spooky things that are happening like oh maybe it's a ghost maybe it's this maybe it's that and you're kind of led to believe for a good portion of the movie that it's going to be supernatural that's the only clue anyone gives you and at the end of it it turns out to be you know some jilted lover or some college student who's doing it for fun it doesn't feel like there's that many movies that give this many outs for it being based in reality and then switch to supernatural again reverse scooby-doo instead of scaring you with the idea of all the potential things that your mind can't understand that are occurring and then settling down into the mundane for the reality it does the reverse and you know this ties into one other thing i liked about the movie is that madsen's character helen she spends a lot of the movie of, the, of that last for probably that first 45 minutes listening to people and, you know, not dismissing their stories. Um, I love the scene when she is transcribing um, the first interview she's doing about Candyman. And a cleaning woman comes in and overhears that the recording mentioned Handyman. And it's like, oh, I've heard that story. That's how the story kind of builds, that she hears a more personal story about Candyman and Cabrini Green. And she's actually listening to these people and hearing their version of the legend. 
it's not just third party stuff, but she's actually listening to people who have some experience and not just dismissing them outright. Yeah, and she yeah. and she she thinks that it's being caused by someone who's using this legend as a mask. So she's not dismissing them in that what they're saying isn't true. She just has a different explanation. So I agree with mm-hmm. you. It's, it's great the way that she is just open to going wherever and talking to anybody, and she wants to uncover the truth. And this also ties into one other thing I'd like to mention. Cassie Lemon's really goodness is her friend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that she has oh, a friend yeah. who is not just the token black person or the token black <laughs> friend. No, she's uh, she's a researcher in her own right. They're going out and they're investigating stuff together. And uh, it, it's really sad when she meets her end in the movie. Especially because uh, she's she's a uh, her, the friend, Bernadette. She's essentially, she has the same curiosity. She comes from the same place. You totally get why they're friends right off the bat. Like, they're not polar opposites that are just slammed together like they would be in an 80s movie. Um, and you also are kind of along for the ride with them. You're like, you don't really want to, like go into this creepy place. And then often Bernadette is the voice of reason wherein she's like, wait, you want to crawl through a hole in the wall? Like, we got to get out of here. She knows that women are sexually assaulted in the halls of of Cabrini Green. She knows people are murdered. She knows, like, she knows the threat a little bit better than I think that Helen does. I think Helen lets her curiosity, in in true horror movie fashion, lets her curiosity get the better of her. And uh, Bernadette is too loyal of a friend to let her go, which I think really helps endear her. So, yeah, Peter, did you have any uh, broader things that you want to talk about? Uh, yeah. So what, one thing I wanted to 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 bring up is uh, so the the movie features a lot of really terrifically creepy aerial photography of Chicago. Oh yeah. Um, but it's shot in a manner. And I think a lot of it has to do with the accompanying score by Philip Glass. A lot of it is shot in a manner that um, lends to the sort of gothic creepiness. Every single Chicago movie gets the skyline in it. This movie is much more focused on sort of capturing. A, parts of the city that don't normally get shot, and B, shooting it in a way that doesn't make Chicago look like this grand metropolis and make it look like more of like a failing empire, if that makes sense. It's, yes. it's, uh, it's A lot of it does have to do with the score, which apparently they tricked Philip Glass into doing, or at least that's what he said. Uh, he said basically that uh, he thought it was going to be some small indie production, you know, maybe it was going to be a very important movie, and he didn't realize that it was going to be some cheesy slasher movie, and apparently he withheld the score from being redistributed within the movie, like, for tapes and stuff until 2001. Like, he held back his score getting in the movie that he already composed it for. I, it was one of those stories that you're reading, like, a three-sentence uh, little description of on a website, and you're like, Philip Glass sounds like kind of a douche. Um, also, I and correct me if I'm wrong, but the only time they do show the big skyscrapers in this movie is like from the perspective of Cabrini Green or other faraway locations. Yes, thank you. I actually have written down here: there is no skyline from the lake shot, <laughs> which is the prototypical Chicago skyline shot. You go out about a mile out into Lake Michigan and you take a shot of the skyline, but no, it's all from Cabrini Green or from that fake neighborhood that uh, Helen lives in. There is no neighborhood named Lincoln Village, by the way. 
I didn't catch that. Yeah, why why were they just trying to make an amalgam of like north side sort of like safer I, white places? Like yeah, what were they I, doing I there? I think so. I think they were just looking for something, okay, it's by the Gold Coast, but we don't want to offend or they just didn't care that much and they're like, let's make it an amalgam of something south of Lincoln Park, but it's not quite Lincoln Park. It's not definitely not Lincoln Center, which is further, much further north. We'll call it Lincoln Village, which doesn't exist. <laughs> and they name and they name drop like the Gold Coast and stuff. Like they name drop actual areas within the within Chicago, actual neighborhoods, which felt very strange to have. Yeah, um, but yeah, they, they. I think the Philip Glass score is really really terrific, and I think that it helps um, sell Chicago in a way that Joseph said is you don't typically see. Uh, it's shot that way. I think that, yeah, every single movie that takes place in Chicago, you get the, that same shot. Um, like, whether it's Adventures in Babysitting or it's like a vacation movie or whatever, even if it's like a gangster movie, you get something that's like essentially shooting Chicago like it's New York. I will compare it uh, favorably. Two years later, The Fugitive has a lot of shots that remind me of this. Because The Fugitive, a oh, lot yeah. of it takes place on, uh, like, the southwest side or the south side or in some of the grungier parts of the loop. There, I think there may be a couple of glamour shots in uh, in The Fugitive, but not anything like you would expect from a movie going, oh, hey, we're in Chicago. It's, not, it's definitely not yeah. shot by, by like, like Ferris Bueller, for instance. Yeah, they shot... Well, yeah, cause that's the one of the people's complaints about Ferris Bueller is he just does has, like, a white dude's perfect vacation day in chicago where they just do white people stuff Uh um it's not it's not something i necessarily agree with as a a slag against the movie but that's what people say about it they go to i think in the fugitive they go to the back of the yards if i'm not mistaken there's a specific sort of working class chicago south side neighborhood feel that they nail in the fugitive they also obviously do in like Shameless. Shameless isn't a great show, but that was the one of the refreshing things about watching Shameless is being like, hey, they didn't do pull the league move where they shot some establishing shots and then uh, shoved them in a in a bar somewhere. Like they actually <laughs> like they actually shot where people live. I can't wait to have both of you guys back on when we do the Mighty Ducks, so no. that I can tell you about all the no. locations here in Minneapolis. Nope. Um, nope. That relate to the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> nope, that's the only the movie Ducks. I am aware. However, we are doing the Virginia Madsen uh, St. Paul movie. We are doing uh, Prairie Home Companion because she's great oh. in that. I saw Prairie Home Companion when it first came out. I remember finding it uh, really lovely, but I haven't seen it since. And she I is in love that. To revisit. And I have been to that diner. She's in at the end of that movie, and it's a rather nice, uh, crappy little diner. Mickey's Diner. Yeah. That's that's also where Charlie's mom worked in the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and every time I drive by, because it's in downtown St. Paul, we were actually just there a couple days ago because we took our, our kid to the Children's Museum, which is like two blocks from Mickey's Diner. And anytime I pass it, I was like, hey, that's where Charlie's mom worked in the Mighty Ducks. Uh, as of yet, no one has found that interesting. Can we talk about my distaste for the entire Mighty Ducks franchise? Oh no, my god, we, we should totally do. We, should, we, sh- we should absolutely have Joseph on if he hates the Mighty Ducks movies because <sighs> I think the first two are pretty good. We should do the Mighty Ducks uh, for a nostalgia check. I haven't seen them in years. Oh, I was I, I watched the the I watched the Mighty Ducks movies on tape around like '97 as like a very young kid. So the year that it actually came out, probably I, I was barely. Were you alive. born in '92? '91. 
Okay. Uh, so so you didn't watch it in theaters, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, technically. I saw the mask in theaters as a baby. <laughs> yeah, you, no offense to your parents, but you have bad one. <laughs> oh, no, his parents are awesome. You can't take a baby to a movie. Well, you take it, I, if you're going to take him to a movie, you take him to a good one. And took him to the mask. Well, yeah, I I yeah. agree with that. Not that the mask uh, is a good movie, but that um, should take. Whoa, whoa, movie. whoa, whoa! Back up here a second. The mask <laughs> is a good movie. Um, I haven't seen it since I was in junior high, and I was in a big Jim Carrey phase, and I didn't like it. So uh, I have no I, reason. Uh, I I can't defend. Like this would be twenty years later for me at this point if I watched it. So I, I don't know. I think. It, I, I think it speaks to the strengths of the mask that I hate Cameron Diaz, and I think it's like one of the three movies that she was in that I think she made sense in. It's like that. There's something about Mary, and I'm gonna save a third option for later because right now I can't think of a third one. It'd be weird uh, if it was Charlie's Angels full throttle. And go, ahead, and go ahead and transition out of this. I like her vocal performance in Shrek. Oh yeah, I liked Shrek as a kid. Sure. I think I might have owned a Shrek soundtrack. That's how young I was. Just love, gotta um, get that Smash Mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could, I could, I could have just uh, bought the Smash Mouth so, uh, yeah. CD at the time. Hey, but we then you saw like, her face, and you're a believer. Uh, <laughs> Why is Smash really Mouth like and Shrek a movie that came out two years after the '90s were over? Preemptive nostalgia. Fair they enough. were launching some, <laughs> some sort of preemptive uh, attack on them. So let's let's get into some specific scenes. The main scene that I want to talk about, which I think is just a complete masterclass in both building dread and subverting expectations, is – it was already mentioned uh, – the public restroom uh, scene before we know that Candyman is real, where that kid is telling Helen about the story of his friend who gets um, basically cut from top to bottom, has his – I don't know a delicate way to put this – has his dick ripped off by Candyman's hook in the bathroom – in the furthest stall from the end, it shows the gory scene, which is very well done. It's slowly panning. And then when Helen goes in there, it does a great job because the story that he tells is that Candyman comes out of the toilet and kills him. So Helen walks in and it's that slow walk to the bathroom. She opens the toilet. What do you get? You don't get a jumps. You don't get a fake scare. You don't get a actual scare of the Candyman. You get something you did not expect, which was the toilet filled with bees. That is a perfect masterclass of setting tone, giving you a scare, but giving you a scare that you in no way expected. And coming out of the 90s, uh, coming out of the 80s into 1992, this seems really interesting because we are coming out of the very standard jump scares into a more slow burn scare. There could have been a hook coming out of that uh, toilet or whatever, but instead it's just a toilet bowl filled with bees, which is somehow far worse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's this, it, you, it's this like, corruption, this, like, weird rot that you're witnessing. And, it, and you. it's not just that there's a, a bunch of honey in the toilet. <laughs> you're, you're seeing something much, much worse is boiling under the surface. And I agree with you that the movie has a slow, creeping sense of dread that I really connected with. And I think really makes certain scenes, like... So, essentially, whenever she, she, Virginia Madsen comes into contact with, whenever Helen comes in contact with the Candyman, it's not like she starts screaming like a banshee and, and trying to run away and, like, trips over her shoes. She becomes instantly, uh, 
mesmerized by uh, Candyman. She kind of gets sucked into this like soft focus terror where you're seeing someone become impotent on screen like she is incapable mm-hmm. of stopping it and it and the scenes last long enough that, that he he can like essentially just walk up and touch her face with his hook and like that feeling of weakness is something that i'm not used to in a movie like this a, a movie with a, a killer a killer with a hook for a hand usually has a lot more people running from the killer with a hook for a hand yeah and there's and there's two other things they do so when they finally really do the good Joseph mentioned the jump scares. They didn't do much. When they finally do one, it's about an hour and ten minutes into this movie, which is where uh, she says Candyman at the doctor's office. And it's this fantastic scene of just the Candyman being behind the doctor and putting the hook through him, which probably means that Tony Todd had to hide behind a desk. Uh, for quite a lot of scenes, but but it is absolutely um, extremely effective, and also I think it subverts expectation to what you were saying, Peter. In that the whole movie is about someone looking in a mirror and saying Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. You make this movie, and you don't have the mind of Clive Barker. It's just a bunch of teenagers doing that for a long time. It's the Bloody Mary episode. And instead, and, and the first time I saw this, I kind of expected that to be the crux of the movie, which was people that just kept saying Candyman's name and that causing problems. Instead, it goes in a whole different direction from any expectations it set up. Though I will say, if I was Helen, I would be a little disappointed. I thought I said this, and worst case scenario, you cut me in two with a hook. Now you got this whole other thing that's going on. You've really stretched this say Candyman in the mirror thing to feature length. So Yeah, she gets more than what she bargains for. She she just wanted to write a story about Cabrini Green and maybe, I don't know, write a dissertation on it. Like I have no idea what her, her actual goal was with that specific project. Do some it research. It seemed like they were uh, looking to get published in some uh, academic magazine about <laughs> About the whole phenomenon. Yeah, and they and at the, by that point, Gabrini Green was like a national na- name, so they could have probably sold some uh, sold some stories that way. But well, I, I, I think, think they were that, just doing urban legends in general. Yeah, yeah. the folklore thing. But I, I think that the, yeah, getting more than what you bargained for is kind of a theme of the movie, wherein she continually has ex- like chances to kind of pull back, um, and it's too late. I really liked that part of the movie as well. Um, I kind of want to talk about a scene very early in the movie. It kind of sets up some stuff later on when she visits her husband when he's lecturing about urban legends and gives him a little junk about, I thought you weren't going to do that uh, lecture until later in the later in the semester so that we could get proper data out of the freshmen. And I like how that scene really sets up a interesting amount of tension with her and her husband. Uh, played by Xander Berkeley, by the way, who really deserves credit. That guy has been working for 30-plus years now, and he's it's always nice when he shows up. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got that sort of smug smile that I could see him playing a true villain or playing just sort of like, hey, this is my neighbor, Paul. Like, right. he has, that, he has that, that nice look to him. Or have you guys seen totally Safe? Safe. I haven't seen Safe. Yeah, I've hey, seen Jul- Safe. Oh, he he is very good in that movie as Julianne Moore's semi-sympathetic husband. Um, It's the best movie of the 90s, according to The Village Voice. Is it really? Yeah, that's... Wow. It's really good, but it's... I'm I'm getting prioritized now. It's Um, pretty great. I wouldn't quite put it as the best film of the 90s, but it's pretty great. Yeah, there's always the Mighty Ducks. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, more D2. D2, guys. The Mighty Ducks 2. Quick, what's the Sorry, subtitle? Really D2 has to have a subtitle. Yeah, D2, The Mighty Ducks. <laughs> ducks 2, The Mighty Ducks. <laughs> it's kind of weird that there are only two good hockey movies. The Mighty Ducks and The Mighty Ducks 2. And Fuck Slapshot? <laughs> Slapshot and Goon. Oh, yeah. Goon's great. Um, I wanted to just generally talk about Tony Todd. I do have a scene specific to that, but I wanted to talk about just Tony Todd's sort of attitude throughout the movie, wherein he's he's got a calm demeanor. He's not this like endless fount of rage. Um, you see him sort of get uh, emotional towards the end of the movie, as anyone would when they're about to be set on fire and, and stabbed. yeah, and stabbed with fire. <laughs> <laughs> stabbed with a fire poker and uh, but he's got this sort of calm seductor's quality to him and he dresses sort of uh with this old-timey quality that gives him this like royal touch where i mean it might have it just be might just be like people from 200 years ago would seem very fancy by today's standards but um but he's wearing he a this- 70s coat yeah, that was another strange thing, but it just kind of worked. He had, he had this. He seemed like the sort of man out of time, yeah. but a man comfortable comfortable with being out of time. He's not filled with anxiety. He just he's just like I know that this action will cause my legend to live on. And that's the other interesting about the thing about the movie is like he's not just out for a body count. He's out for um, an efficient body count, a big shocking moment that will make people know his name. Let me ask you this about the Candyman's character. Do you think that he knows that be my victim is a pun? <laughs> I didn't <laughs> I didn't oh, know I that. I feel like now. a moron that I did that it took me thirty seconds to get that pun. <laughs> oh my god. That hurts. I'm just saying I I, I don't oh. think that he does know that. It's not a disservice to the movie, but there's just so many bees, and he keeps saying bee, like he drags it out and says bee, my victim, and it's like, I don't know, maybe maybe wasps would have been a better word for you guys to use. I think he, he doesn't understand any irony. Like, Freddy Krueger would get that right away, but he does he does not get it. That's hilarious. I didn't catch that either. Yeah, that's one, um, thing, I, that's one thing I really like about the Candyman. He is not in any way a jokey character. No. Oh, yeah, dude. Exactly. Exactly what I was going to say. He's, there is none of this uh, Freddy Krueger stuff. There's none of this um, later on Scream stuff. Well, Scream comes about 97? Six. 96? Okay. There's none of this late uh, mid-period Jason stuff. Not the Jason character himself, of course. But there was some jokey stuff in the mid-period uh, Jason movies. Um, but he is not a jokey horror villain at all. And I find that really kind of fascinating. And I like how he floats. Yeah. Even, yeah. When, even when he's not literally floating, when he's just walking, he is just kind of has this presence of, oh, this guy's just going to float over to me right away. There's a sort of majestic quality to him that doesn't make him, he's not just some Freddy character where he's just hacking people apart. Though when he does um, need to finally perform one of his murders, it's visceral and disgusting and horrible. But the, the, the true threat there isn't that. It's that he'll, like, fuck up your life just for not bending to his power. I'm not trying to step on your scene that you were going to talk about, Peter. But as long as we're talking about that that aspect of his character, I think that speaks to both one of my favorite things 
about this movie and my one big frustration with it, which is that unlike most of these ser- most of these serial killer movies or slasher movies, there's an aspect to it that it's how do we defeat this evil? How do we stop this person? And I love that at no point in this movie is that part of Helen's plan. No one discusses it. Most lesser versions of this story have a scene where someone goes rummaging through the library and figuring out old folklore to how you stop the Candyman and then uses that at the climax. I love that that's not part of it. There's even the part where she first heads back to his, like, um, to the Candyman's safe house. She kind of half-heartedly stabs him and he doesn't react. He's just like, okay, well, now you're here. And that's great, which is why I think the one part of the ending that doesn't work for me is that suddenly... Suddenly she defeats him by stabbing him with the wooden stake under the fire, which brought her there to be sacrificed to to create the legend. It's not it's not a problem that I have that it's not explained that this was something that could stop the Candyman. It's more that it's so unsatisfying that like it, it would have been fine, I think, if it just stopped him from doing whatever communion he was trying to do with Helen for a movie that went out of their way to never even broach the subject of defeating the Candyman. The idea that even on some level it ends with defeating the Candyman feels frustrating and unsatisfying to me. Yeah, I think that the I think that my issue was more with actually her entering a a new cycle where she becomes the new folk legend. Um, Oddly, I have no problem with that. My problem is much more with the how easy it was to kill him and why is there this bonfire all of a sudden? Which I don't think was really set up in the movie. They, no. they set up. They set up that there was. They set up why there was a pile of shit there. They didn't set up why the kid. They didn't really establish why the kid wanted to burn it. Did they? Like, well, he got his. Well, they set up that the kid was talking to Candyman because when Helen says, "Oh, it turns out there's no Candyman. It's it's just this dude." He was like, "That can't be right." Yeah, I, th- I feel like I feel like it has the problem with most horror movie endings, where as soon as uh, they needs to come to some sort of conclusion, you need to put some sort of limitations on the this massive things, this massive forces uh, powers, and that's why a lot of people have problems with like penultimate climax of it follows, where they're in the swimming pool, and people have problems with like the idea that people would think that they could stop. The kids could stop the creature that way, which that movie, I think, plays it like desperate kids just coming up with whatever they want. In this movie, it kind of has this quality where like, well, why why can you just stab the Candyman now? And it it works visually like the the, the bonfire is very eerie in terms of it it, it reminds me of the Yellow King's chamber in True Detective. It's just this like thatch of of branches and shit. But all but all she had to do was like. Like, knee him in the balls or something, and then, like, escape. Like, again, I like that there was no setup that he could be killed, but then if you're going to kill him, you need to give some setup. Now, again, I wish they just wouldn't have killed him because all the stuff about how no one even talks about killing or stopping this unstoppable force is one of my favorite parts about the movie. But it, it's even worse to just suddenly, oh, now this works. You're dead now, yeah. B-Man. Yeah, and he gains power from being a folkloric creature. So, like, the way his means of defeat should probably be somehow, I don't know, uniting people to not talk about the Candyman or something. They, like, obviously, you can't just it's like Freddy that. versus Jason style. 
They <laughs> forgot about me. Um, no, but I, I agree with Joseph. I think that that Helen becoming part of it makes total sense. It's just weird to be an absence of the Candyman. It does make sense in the sense that I really love the final shot of her becoming a paint, like her being a painting in the wall of Cabrini Green, which um, is a lovely shot. Yeah. It's so eerie. It's very like the end of The Shining, where it's just like a picture of a stat a static picture of a static portrait shouldn't be so uncomfortable to look at. I really, I really enjoyed that. I think it's more the fact of horror movie language. Like the industry has kind of ruined that shock ending. That feels like like I called her Candy Helen as a joke. Like it's almost like they're setting up for a sequel, even though that's not what the movie's actually saying. So that's what kind of soiled that for me. Though I do like the idea that like a woman crawled out of a fire to save a baby in front of a crowd of like hundreds of people. And then that created a new legend that really worked for me, but not the, uh, not, yeah, I agree with you guys. Not so much the actual fact that Candyman goes away. Can they only have one folkloric legend? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's all That's all you get? The new folklore has to kill the old folklore. <laughs> it's tiny big enough for two scale, two, two myths. Like, what? what is the point behind the replacement? Have you learned nothing or from the uh, Huntsman movies? <laughs> I haven't seen the Huntsman yeah. movies. <laughs> so, so, no, I've learned nothing <laughs> from them. <laughs> I don't know, well, Joseph. I don't know, which, what, what, what parts of the ending work for you? What didn't work for you? Like, it was so easy to kill Candyman. That's the part that I just... Yeah. And I watched it a second time this afternoon, and that bugged me again. I'm like, why is it so easy to kill him? Is it because you're the next Candyman? <laughs> is this part of the ritual? I'm wondering if the sequels found a clever way to retcon it. Um, Do I my care guess that is much? no. <laughs> it's true. This was so fun to get introduced to this new character for the first time. His whole thing about you were always there, Helen. Like I was like, is she supposed to be the reincarnated version of his lover? And that's not the case. He is kind of a sad evil who's trying to recreate this familial. That's why. That's why he steals the baby. Hmm. I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to read that literally. That all that stuff was very unsatisfying to me. I'm just yeah. I'm trying to read read that literally, and I feel like you've got to do a lot of gymnastics to get there. But and that's those are the, those are the little things in the third act that always mess with the sort of myth making of these these slasher or these sort of um, supernatural monsters. There's always some sort of like muddying of the waters when they try and tie it back to their origin story or they they try and like create a new myth for them. Like there's always this sort of clash between that, I think, because part of us is just like we like the scary monster as it is. We don't necessarily need the scary monster to have some sort of like prophetic fate. We were supposed to be reunited. Feels to me it feels kind of like eh, okay. Well, and Joseph, can you just like can you just like her? <laughs> yeah. Um Joseph, since I don't know your take on the recent um the recent slate of independent horror movies that don't fall this, I'm actually I'm interested in your opinion here. I think that's one way that horror movies have gotten better is that they don't feel a need to defeat the villain every time that and in the 80s and 90s there was almost always some aspect of that that feels like it had to get shoehorned into the movie yes i'm going to tiptoe around certain films of the last uh, call it five years just for the hell of it and i think the ones i've enjoyed the most are the ones that 
I, I well, obviously, I have enjoyed ones that have had quote unquote defeats. But going back to it follows. There is no defeat in that movie. I firmly believe. Yep. <laughs> Which, if you, yeah, if you like, exactly. If you look at the last shot of that movie, there's no defeat there. It's just still going. Yeah, exactly. And then the movie wouldn't wouldn't work as well, I think, without that sort of um, unreleased anxiety. I mean, that well, and even so, like the Babadook, there's acceptance, but there's not defeat in the sense that you know they stab the Babadook in the heart with a flaming piece of <laughs> table, right? Yeah, they worked. They, she worked through the trauma and is now like she's operating in a better position than she was before the climax. Obviously, but yeah, the monster's not defeated; it's just subjugated. Um, I wouldn't but call it, it subjugated. Follows, you like, I would call it they have an arrangement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they've 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 reached an accord. That's one of the reasons she, I think uh, that was my favorite female performance of that year. Oh my the, god, the she's so amazing! Performance. Bessie Davis is so fucking good. She's incredible in that. Oh Did, my do god. either of you watch See, her on uh, Miss Fisher Murder Mysteries? No, no. But no, the I only reason that. I know about that show at all is because of your podcast. Oh, oh god, you you guys really have to check that out. It's, it, it's on Netflix. It's an Australian nineteen twenties uh, Miss Marple esque murder mystery. It's stylish as hell. It's funny, and she just kills on it. So, um, I think I think one of the criticisms that never really works for me on the most recent spate of horror movies, because I've heard the criticism that well they never end satisfyingly, they always end open ended, and I don't think that's true. And I would say, well, go back to the movies twenty years ago in the same genre, and they always feel like they need to have a conclusion. It's fine if your movie has a conclusion for a horror movie that makes sense, but this is a perfect example of feeling like it was forced in there. In a way that doesn't make sense for the narrative that they're telling. Yeah, why? Why is that? Like the it follows ending would be just perfect for this. The legend lives on. Maybe she, um, maybe uh, Helen dies at the end. Whatever. I disagree. The legend living on. For, I, you think I the like, legend should I end? Like the Helen becomes a new legend ending for this. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, I guess that is continuing the legend, so to speak. I just mean the sense that uh, Candyman himself could have continued the legend. Like, we we didn't have to have the actual defeat of the Candyman. Like an open ended sort of ending. Like, what the what the hell is gonna come next? What I think what I think what Peter's trying to say is that. There can't be female Ghostbusters, and there can't be female. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Candy Man. <laughs> um, but yeah, do you guys have any closing thoughts? This this sort of we we sort of burned through a lot of our energy reserves. I would imagine. I was uh, getting. I to was the, very happy to finally have a reason to see this. This is a good movie. I mean, it feels like a fever dream in a lot of parts of it, and I like that. That you, yeah. there's a lot of it where you're not quite sure is, how much is she insane and how much does Candyman actually exist, and I, I, I like the feel of it. Yeah, I agree totally. the 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 power of the movie is in its yeah that the fever dream nature of it. It has this this sort of um, eerie quality to it that seeps between the scenes, where even a, a sort of um, calmer scene between two characters can you still feel like. Candyman can make an appearance uh, elsewhere. I, I, the, the movie has a has a really surreal quality to that to it that I enjoy when mashed up against the beginning um, groundwork of 
This is actually taking place in Chicago. These are the act. These are actual people. The movie has a lot of sympathy for the people that are forced to live in this poverty, surrounded by violence and apathy from the general public. I mean, the, the Candyman's the only time. The only way that the, the Candyman serial killer, the first guy, the the human being guy, gets caught is because a white woman gets assaulted. That's when the cops come in and start shaking things up and making doing lineups. Uh, and the movie is grounded in that sort of everyday Chicago crime and uh, poverty. And then it escalates that outward. I just wanted to, uh, when you were talking about that, I think we need to just mention Vanessa Williams as the one uh, female president of Cabrini Green that we get to know is really good. Oh, she's so good. I mean, her she scene, has a... her scene with the kidnapping is terrifying. Oh my god, the screams! Because this movie isn't full. This movie isn't wall to wall screams like a, like something else. But the the screams, the shrill, horrible sound of like a woman who just doesn't want harm to befall the most precious thing in her life. I honestly thought the is, kid had been murdered in the crib the first time. Yeah, I I was just about to ask like who thought that baby was dead in that crib. Because I thought that upon a, a rewatch, I was like, oh, the, fuck, I forgot there's a baby that's murdered in this crib. She sells the pain so fucking well. Yeah. And it's such a jarring scene that you're like, oh, man, this movie just turned it up to 11. But she also sells the <laughs> earlier scene when she's just talking to them yep. about you guys are just going to do one of those normal stories about us about we're all gangbangers. She sells that scene yeah. really well. It's perfect because she's just like, I have no interest in helping you out exploit us. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like take a walk. Like, you, you don't belong here. Take a walk. Um, don't get yourself hurt on the way out. And by the way, I would yeah. like to note, you had another person recurring role in The Flash. Yeah, she plays... Someone in The Flash <laughs> loves Candyman. <laughs> that, that's going to make no fucking sense if we edit out the first part. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, Aaron. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, one, the one last thing I want to say is that the first time you saw this movie, which for Joseph was recently, but like, you went and said Candyman in the mirror five times, right? No. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid doing the, the Bloody Mary thing, specifically finishing it and then um, spending the next two years telling people that I did that. And uh, nobody believing me. You needed new things to talk about over two years there, Peter. <laughs> Every That's time. a long time to be just telling people, hey, Peter Moran, I said Bloody Mary three times in the mirror. Still alive. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, still alive. Not murdered. Yeah, the curse is that me, you have uh, to bloody, keep talking about. Bloody Mary was nothing for me as a kid. It was all about Resurrection Mary. What's Resurrection Mary? Resurrection Mary is a classic Chicago myth of a woman uh, who supposedly died in uh, the late 20s that uh, her ghost gets picked up hitchhiking and they get dropped off to Resurrection Cemetery in Joliet. I've heard this before. I was, uh, I was last summer. I was, I was really bored and I was going to do a bunch of ghost, ghost tours, uh, around Chicago. And that was one of the ones I was reading about. Wow. I was really hoping that that story ended with, you know, Resurrection Mary, she gave birth to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, in John 316. Oh, Jesus, God in heaven. (laughs) I, I was hoping this this weirdly turned into a. I think this is a podcast right now with three atheists on it. So I thought it'd be very funny if it turned into a religious podcast at the very end. I'm not an atheist. I'm a humanist. So an atheist then? Basically, yes. <laughs> I think it's it's a friend it's a friendlier club to be a. It part is. Of. That sounds yes. way better. 
less less confrontational. So, anyways, so yeah, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Um, <laughs> that, hold on, should I not do that mid laugh? <laughs> um, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'll do this better. Um, thank you very much, Joseph, for being on the show. Um, we really appreciate you coming on. We're definitely going to have you on again for I don't know. We'll we'll plan out the schedule. Nostalgia check episode at least. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I was very happy to come on and uh, and appreciate a movie that I somehow had never seen before. Yeah, that's the that's the goal is that we uh, we all uh, learn something else about uh, learn about a movie we either never seen before or uh, reappraise something we've already seen. So that's uh, I'm glad that we got to do it with you. That was a lot of fun. I um, thought you said you were going to do this better. <laughs> um yeah go ahead Aaron. do you want to uh do you want to top us off yeah well next week we are doing uh 1981 uh zulowski movie possession with sam neill and isabella uh good luck um (laughs) that um, movie is grade a fucked up (laughs) that is true so and after possession what are we doing uh, we're going to be doing a simple plan with our guest, uh, uh, Dustin Koski, who is a host of uh, Chilling Tales, a great podcast. And he is also an author with his brother, uh, Adam Koski, of a book called uh, Forest, A Tale of Magic Gone Wrong, F-O-R-U-S-T. And uh, yeah, that's available at uh, Amazon right now. Yep. And then our final week before the mysterious rebranding that we've been teasing is going to be The Apple, which is a canon musical that a lot of people say is the greatest movie of all time. Neither of us have seen it yet, so we don't know that for sure. Uh, Peter hates musicals. He loves canon movies. And we want to know, can a Peter Moran divided against himself stand? And, uh, yeah, one last one last thing. Uh, if you haven't checked out uh, Try It, You'll Like It from uh, Joseph. Uh, he's one of the co-hosts of the show. And I assure you that if you like our show, that you will also like his. And you can find us at uh, tryandlikeit.blogspot.com. We're on Stitcher. We're on uh, the iTunes. Uh, you can find us pretty easily. Yeah, thank you so much again, Joseph. This was a ton of fun. I cannot imagine you not joining us again. Assuming that, I mean, he, Joseph could always go back and be like, that was a harrowing experience. I'm going to need some serious counseling. <laughs> uh, um, but if he'll have Armstrong, us, we'll, we'll definitely have you back. Armstrong. Armstrong. <laughs> oh! Thank you so uh, much, everyone. Have a good night. Yeah, thank, thank you very you. much, everyone. How are we going? Oh!